Good morning, everybody. Good to have you along with us today. I think we are all familiar with the quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And I have thought about that a lot over the past two years. Back in May of 2020, I talked to Christopher Nichols on this program. He is an associate professor of history and the director of the Center for the Humanities at Oregon State University. And we talked about what happened during the pandemic 100 years ago. And it is eerie how much of what happened then happen now, from the masking to the distancing to the lockdowns to the conversation about vaccines and the opposition to it all. So now, as we seem poised to move to the next stage of the pandemic, I thought it would be good to check in and see what the past could tell us about the future. Christopher Nichols joins us now to do just that. Thanks for your time today. It's excellent to be on with you. Thanks for having me. When we uh, chatted last, it was relatively early in the pandemic. You know, we were talking then about, you know, history tends to repeat itself. And back then we were talking about masking, uh, distancing, uh, the reaction to some of these measures, uh, you know, predictions regarding uh, vaccines at the time. People kept predicting they would come. And we've had a better time of it on the vaccine front than they did 100 years ago. But I'm just curious, as we've gone through the past two years, what's it been like for you? Has it been like watching? history on on repeat it has been yes you know it's it's rare for historians to have the past be so eerily similar to the present uh, we're often asked you know what are the insights or lessons of the past does history repeat itself you know we like to say most of us professional historians that no history doesn't quite repeat itself it rhymes uh, hmm. it's an old mark twain line and you know but in this case the rhymes are so similar uh, they're practically synonyms, you know, so the things we've seen uh, like, you know, masking and hygiene practices, social distancing, closures, ventilation, limits on gatherings, quarantines, mandates, clo- you know, all that kind of stuff. That's what they did in 1918 and 19. And, and that's what we've seen and been living with for several years now. We're about to enter our third year of the pandemic, believe it or not. And the angst they had then, similar to the angst we had now, were just responding to all those measures? Very much, yeah. You know, it's another part of this eerie set of similarities. There was pushback then. Uh, there was fatigue and exhaustion then, uh, particularly, you know, um, for these kinds of more draconian measures, uh, closures, uh, mandates of particular kinds that, that impacted, say, business or school. Um, so, you know, the angst about the future was also very much there. It's palpable in, you know, uh, memoirs and diaries and letters to the editor. Um, and in fact, it's kind of searing when you look at those social historical examples. You see people so fearful because then, unlike now, they didn't have vaccines, they didn't understand viruses, um, they didn't have good treatment methods, and, and it was affecting the healthiest among them. So the, you know, roughly 18 to 45-year-olds then uh, were dying. Um, about half of total deaths were in that range. Uh, and so those people, the healthiest among the population, um, you know, uh, breadwinners, uh, parents, uh, essential workers, you know, they were very fearful. And you find in their letters um, and in their memoirs and diaries uh, a, a really sad set of angst where they don't help their relatives or friends, that they get less engaged with their communities. You know, some his- historians have described uh, late 1918 and early 1919 as a moment of the social fabric really rending. Um, and we've seen elements of that, but actually, you know, I'd argue that in Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere, um, societies have done remarkably well holding up uh, to the multiple years of, of on and off mandates and, and, the, and the battles over 
um, the public health policies related to the pandemic itself, not simply the death, disease, and infection, but and suffering and private trauma, but also the public practices that, that are contentious. It took a long time for vaccines to come along 100 years ago. We've done much better now, of course. We've come a long way on that front. I'm curious, you know, as we are in this position now where we're in the pandemic, maybe we'll switch to an endemic situation. It'll be or a, some different type of pandemic. How they transitioned back then and what we might learn from the past as we transition to this next stage, whatever it might be or, or is. You know, that's a superb question. I think it's something all the scholars of the previous pandemics have been struggling with. How to, how to articulate some of the insights from then and how they might help inform what we're looking forward to in the near future. I mean, one element that you see in the fall of 1918, late fall and winter of 1919, is that as people get more exhausted with measures, uh, a fatigue, of flu fatigue, as they called it, um, you saw special interests lobby local state politicians um, and very often try to get those mandates off earlier. Um, and those places, uh, in the U.S. context, uh, the city of Denver did this, a called amusement lobby. A group of people came together who wanted billiard halls and restaurants and other places open. They, they lobbied, and actually they had a higher second peak of deaths um, because of that. Uh, you saw places like San Francisco, famously, called the Mask City. Um, there was a pushback uh, and some confusion about orders related to masking. Uh, and then as the, the epidemic then receded, they, they quickly took back uh, a second set of mask orders, again, lobbied by um, the so-called Anti-Mask League, the one uh, large lobby in the U.S. that was doing that. Um, and that's only a few thousand people. So it wasn't like there was large organized pushback. But in any case, both of those examples are examples of how later in a, in a pandemic, um, politicians and local leaders and others can be sort of forced by special interests and their constituents to do things that actually aren't maybe in the best public health interest. And we're seeing that here, um, you know, in the U.S. And, uh, and you're seeing that in Canada and you're seeing that in um, Britain and elsewhere that, in fact, um, you know, there's a, a number of places are taking off indoor mask mandates before the data related to disease and spread um, warrant it, arguably. Um, and that's one of the lessons from 1918 and 19. Another one, a basic one that I think is worth us all considering, is that at the end of the day, pandemics don't end um, biologically or epidemiologically. They, they end psychologically. Uh, this is about a subjective set of risk calculations that one might make. Um, it depends, you know, in our present moment with our modern medical knowledge on it, whether or not your, your family, your friends, your acquaintances are vaccinated and boosted if any, are immune compromised, um, you know, and then how you think about uh, what sorts of ways you should interact, uh, what a new normal might be. And a lesson I often emphasize from 1918 and 19 is as long as there's a, a deadly infectious disease in a population and as long as there are sufficient number of people who can spread it uh, and who aren't, say, vaccinated in our current context, there's no such thing as business as usual. And so, but if you jettison that concept, then you can move forward with something that resembles uh, a normal life, a kind of new normal. So what practices might you be willing to adopt in everyday behavior uh, that would prevent spread or that would allow you to feel more comfortable? And one of the things that they said in 1919, as they feared a next wave, a third or fourth wave of the pandemic, was that they argued, like the U.S. Surgeon General at the time, that communities should get ready and plan in advance for recurrences. And the, the main argument that they often said, uh, you know, the U.S. Surgeon General 
uh, Rupert Blue would say it's all about preparedness. So be ready for that next stage when it comes and don't be kind of naive or have too much wishful thinking that it won't happen. So as that, as that pandemic moved to the endemic stages, really what you saw was a set of social, psychological and risk evaluation calculus or calculi um, that pushed people, uh, leaders and others to make either difficult decisions or easy decisions and try to think through what it meant to be prepared for another wave, while at the same time resuming some normal practices of life so that they didn't live with a kind of constant pandemic. This may not be the best descriptor, but it almost sounds as though it may be kind of petered out in that it starts strong and then there are still measures and there's discussions and there's efforts looking forward towards the virus, not forgetting about the virus, but the way it was managed just sort of kind of starts to, to fall down, fall down and just kind of almost peter out a little bit, even though it's still present. Yep, I think that's a, the right way to put it. And then another element of this from the history, which maybe should alarm us, is there was a kind of rapid amnesia about the the depth of suffering, suffering, the private trauma of the pandemic. So, you know, if you look around the world, there's almost no monuments and almost no commemorations to the 1918-19 pandemic. But in the U.S., it killed 675,000 people. You know, worldwide, it may have killed as many as, as 50 million people. So it was absolutely catastrophic. As it peters out, you know, people are, get willfully ignorant about that. Um, and, you know, you, though you can find lots of evidence, small examples in the 1920s into the 1930s of what was then long flu, a set of psychological conditions, fatigue, disorder, lung problems, they're there. People don't talk about them much. And I wonder what, you know, what we have to come as this pandemic moves to an endemic stage. You know, what will long COVID be like? Um, you know, what kinds of public health policies or, or uh, structures will be set up? A big example in the U.S. and a great contrast with Canada is that, you know, in 1919, um, be criticized for failing to provide public resources, good public health coordination, um, Canada set up its Department of Health. Uh, the U.S. did not. The U.S. did not do much to structure its public health service any further and to federalize it and to strengthen it. And, you know, that's a good contrast there. What are the examples that we'll see as we move into a more endemic stage of this? Will there be care facilities for long COVID? Will there be other ways to manage outbreaks. You know, if, if it is petering out, it will peter out most likely um, in different ways in different communities. There may be communities that are, are worse hit at different moments. Are there ways that the government can support that or communities can? Um, there's a lot to think through there. It's interesting you say that because I was wondering if, you know, at some point, you know, 10 years from now, people might look back on it and we're in the moment we were, uh, you know, we were uh, chafing at the bit to get out and be around others. If maybe we'd look back on it and say, oh, it was, the, it was a great time in our in our lives, but maybe it doesn't take 10 years for that to set in. Yeah, I mean, I think one uh, one element that's very different is with the velocity of change in social media and our access to information now, you know, I suspect that would be speeded up. So if it took, you know, five or 10 years then, I, I imagine it will just take a few years when the pandemic has receded sufficiently um, to really be grappling with that. I mean, one of the lessons of 1918 and 19, when you look at the history, is that the essential story of that pandemic was one of suffering. Um, but it's one that historians for a long time and most people haven't really thought much about, right? So if that this tremendous amount of suffering is the central story, um, what will be the our version of that? And will it also be somewhat forgotten? 
Um, that's, you know, that's a that's a concern if you're thinking about what kinds of structures we can set up as societies uh, to help support people, say, essential workers or those who are stricken in the future. Um, you know, w- we shall see. You know, the another piece of thinking about all this um, is a, a desire to make sense of a pandemic. And I think that's something you find at the high political level in 1918 and 19, coming out of World War One as well, um, and that you see in the kind of uh, manifestations of, every, of everyday life, you know, that people found a range of ways of making the pandemic something meaningful to them rather than a wasted catastrophe. And I wonder if that's another element of what we're going to see in the near future, whether it's the new place of work, you know, we're working from home more or Zoom or these sorts of things or or innovations in schooling or new ways of thinking about who and what counts as essential workers or questions of inequality, you know, that this has fallen very differently on different populations uh, now as it did in 1918 and 19. In terms of, you know, what we could do maybe differently if if history is repeating itself or rhyming very loudly, um, can we do something differently to maybe uh, maybe not correct the mistakes of the past because you're in the moment, you don't quite know, but having the ability to look back at what happened before that is so closely resembling what we're doing now, is there a way we can maybe avoid some of the same pitfalls? You know, uh, we're so far into this. In some ways, we're we're a little bit trapped by the guardrails that we've that we've placed here. But I think you know one lesson that scholars of 1918 and 19 um, cite all the time that I think would still be useful today um, is that clear, honest, open um, communication is essential, especially from on high. And if you think about protests you know, in Canada and the U.S. and elsewhere around the world about freedom and, and masks and that sort of thing. You know, having better arguments, um, more clear kinds of criteria for masking uh, and, and making that case publicly um, as a kind of way not to infringe on freedoms, but rather to repurpose that in the 1918 sense it was used in a kind of collective um, patriotism or nationalism or, a, uh, or even, um, you know, a, a, a request for sacrifice for fellow people. I think that's the sort of thing at least I'm keeping in mind now as a lesson from 1918 and 19. That is the, the need for communication and the need for requesting um, uh, kind of collective behaviors that will help people. I'm thinking about a friend who's going through cancer treatment, who, who, you know, who's immune compromised. How many people are, that, are there like that around us today that we should think more about and make more of a part of our everyday behaviors? Another lesson, as I noted, you know, in some of those city studies from 1918 and 19 is that Politicians are being forced into tough decisions, um, and it'll be important that people take uh, take action if they have strong beliefs at the local and state level. Um, in the U.S., this is happening a lot at school board levels where uh, very vocal minorities are yelling about taking off mask mandates in schools. Um, so, you know, if you have a different opinion, you should make it known at, at your at your uh, local level, state level, et cetera, um, because those tough decisions being forced through by special interests may not be in the best interest of the community, but rather their own uh, sort of more parochial needs, right? Uh, so those are a few of them. You know, I think it, at the 30,000-foot level, one takeaway from 1918-19 as it became uh, that pandemic became more endemic uh, isn't just that pandemics are psychological and in the eye of the beholder in some ways, but also that they're political. Um, and that, you know, if you think about going back and forth on disaster response, on officials, you know, backtracking on statements, um, these are the kinds of things that we've seen real missteps made on. 
Um, and, you know, I'm hoping that as we move forward, clearer kinds of guidance can move, can be developed by different national governments and state governments. But it's also on us to consider that as regular citizens. You know, what are the political dimensions of this? What are the psychological dimensions of this? And, and not kind of succumb to that wishful thinking or that fatigue. Like we need to honor it because it's hard and it's a pain to do some of these behaviors. But it doesn't mean that we need to um, follow through with it, right, uh, or become overly lazy uh, and just try to keep in mind those people like my friend who's going through cancer treatment. It's a good point. It's a very good point. Uh, Christopher, as always, I, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Glad to chat with you. And thanks for caring about the lessons of history. That's Christopher Nichols, Associate Professor of History and the Director of the Center for the Humanities at Oregon State University.